Well, just like, so those like points that you jotted down, were those like, what kind of were those points? Just so I don't like cross over. Well, it's just a summary, I guess, of the, the main reasons why I'm skeptical about mm. the, about whether the climate change issue is as uh, dangerous as most people believe, especially young people who have been through a system. I mean, are, are you first year university or something like that at the moment? Um, we're like different. So I'm first year, Becky's fourth year, Griffin, I think is. Right, okay. So, so you've been through between 12 and 15 years of what I would regard as close to indoctrination about the thing. Okay. And um, so I just jotted down some points. I can go through those. It might take a little bit too long. I've actually got, um, I, I thought I had a whole bunch of things on this morning, but it turns out that I'm relatively free. So I've got as long as you like, but you must be very busy because your students, you've got an assignment. So um, whatever way you want to do this. Well, um, we can um, definitely, and we can definitely go like over the half an hour because we're yeah. um, poor university students, I will admit. Um, we don't have like the actual Zoom thing, so we'd probably need to like close the Zoom call and um, put it back up yeah. again. Um, but like, yeah. I'm sure like that's no problem if we wanted to go further, just because. No. Yeah. Um, I guess like with those points, we kind of can kind of just like do it as we go. Um, and we can just like start asking questions, and then um, you can kind of bring those points up. And if you feel like you want to elaborate more on something, you need to please. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't I start? I'm I'm actually going to start at the end of my list. Um, and that's that one of my big, you know, if, you, if you're worrying about climate change, mm. and maybe you're right to worry about climate change, I'm certainly not saying you're not, but I think there's an over-worrying, uh, people are worrying too much about climate change to the detriment of other things which they should be worrying about. Okay. And one of my concerns is that um, there's a whole bunch of people of your age who are literally in depression about the state of the world and that you shouldn't be. Your generation has got, a far better prospect. Uh, you will live a far better life uh, than I did as, as a young person or my grandparents did that, you know, things are actually pretty good. There are other major environmental threats, which we just ignore, such as because I come from a geophysical background, such as the threats of major volcanic eruptions. We, the last major one occurred just over 200 years ago, and it dropped the temperature of the world by one or two degrees within a week and cause massive starvation across the whole world, across the whole of Europe. And we're not ready for that sort of thing to happen now because we're so preoccupied with a degree over a century, which really is neither here nor there. We've also got problems um, we've just seen with the COVID thing, the nasty viral mutation, you've got a, a huge thing. But also um, I, I think that people are not worrying enough about uh, non-scientific things like the um, the nasty organisations in big tech and say China, which is manipulating information. And I regard these as just huge threats to us, much bigger than the threat to climate change. And by the way, I'm not saying that carbon dioxide doesn't um, increase the temperature. I would say, uh, and a lot of people of a sceptical nature of me, that if you do the first back of the envelope calculation, the doubling in carbon dioxide should have about a one degree increase in temperature. And that's just neither here nor there. You look at the geological history of changes in climate over thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, it just doesn't add up to a hill of beans and we shouldn't be worrying about it. Now, of course, if we get five degrees, now that's a different story. 
but then you have to believe the models. And I've taught meteorology and oceanography for, you know, 20 years. And in my view, those models are not fit for purpose uh, in terms of their predictability. Um, I also hate to say this, and this will make me sound like a conspiracy theorist, but the data records have been massively tampered with. And you, you can Google right, that. Maybe the Bureau of Meteorology. Sorry. Like, like, so, um, like you said, like the data records. I'm assuming like a lot of like the um models for like climate change, that kind of stuff. Who like? Sorry, I, they, I lost that. It was a dog barking um, there. Um, can you hear me now? Is that all good? Yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yep. So those, so the data records that have um been tampered with, have they been yep. like? Would they be tampered with the scientists or people with other like other people? No, the, the Bureau of Meteorology, for example, I mean, they'll completely admit that they have raised the temperatures of, say, 100 years ago by about a degree, three quarters of a degree. They, they give some reasons for it, some of which are valid. Um, some of the records before, say, 1910 are a little bit dubious because they didn't use Stevenson screens. Um, but there's many others which they cannot justify or their justification for doing it uh, seems to me to be completely spurious. They don't take into account properly the, the modern use of electronic um, data recording techniques, which is much more likely to hit the, the maximums. Uh, you look at the way the temperature record, say for the US in particular, which is where this has also been happening. And they don't, they don't dispute this, by the way, so that they have raised the temperatures in the past. Um, so, for example, the massive heat waves of the 1930s, the Great Dust Bowl, the Grapes of Wrath, John Steinbeck, um, has been basically been eliminated from history. And I don't think that this is uh, justifiable at all. And then you look at things like the United States fire records where, you know, there's been fires recently. In the 1930s and 1950s, the fires were burning about 10 times the am amount of land that they're burning now. It's just a fact, but um, you never hear about this. You never hear about the fact that well, you hear all sorts of things about the, uh, you know, we're supposedly having much more loss of lives from extreme weather events. That's just not true. There's about a 99% reduction in the loss of lives from extreme events, especially if you take into account the population growth in the last hundred years. So we're not losing more people from cyclones and floods and bushfires. We're losing, you know, only 1% of the people that we were in those days. Um, the sea level rise, you know, what do you reckon, how much do you reckon the sea level has risen in Sydney? Any of you guys from Sydney? No, of you? Good mm -hmm. on you. Well, how much do you reckon the sea level in Sydney has risen in the last hundred years? I think from what I, from the information I know, the it hasn't risen a huge amount, but the worry is that it will rise a much larger amount within the coming century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's risen by that much in the last hundred years, right? And now we're worried about metres and tens of metres. You know, we, we've already had a massive increase in the amount of carbon dioxide and we've had that much sea level rise. When the tide uh, goes up and down by, you know, a couple of metres where a big storm event can raise the, the water level by, what, metres. In, um, in North Queensland, where I am, the, the biggest cyclone that ever hit this coast was in 1898 where the tidal surge was about four metres and the water went inshore at Bathurst Bay by about 10 kilometres, right? If that had happened in Cairns or Townsville this year, it would, it would kill somewhere in the order of 10 
to 20,000 people, right? That was 1898. So you've got all these sorts of uh, things that are going on. And then you look in the IPCC reports about things like the huge benefits of carbon dioxide to plants. So if you increase, I mean, for a plant, the two major inputs are firstly water and then carbon dioxide. Plants are made of carbon dioxide and water in the form of lignin and all the rest of the things that are in them. And greenhouse growers have known for a century that if you pump carbon dioxide into a greenhouse, your tomatoes will grow faster. This has been well known. We know that our crops are growing faster because the carbon dioxide increase. We also know that the areas, you know, large areas of Australia are a lot greener now than in the early 1980s when satellites first started to look at greening. Um, and this is exactly what you expect because uh, the plant is able to close down its tomato to allow, um, get the same amount of carbon dioxide in, but lose less water and therefore there's better utilization. Why isn't this almost ever mentioned? I mean, I have no difficulty in accepting there are problems from increasing temperature, but why do we ignore? Sorry, Ben, you were gonna say something. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, Steve, basically the gist that I'm getting from you, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're like, you're not at all denying like just like the fact that climate change and global warming and um, of, um, carbon dioxide increase is a result of human activities but like what you're kind of disputing is like that you're not disputing that at all you're just disputing that it actually is as bad as people say it is because yes there are well you're disputing partly how bad the future effects are based on models but you're also disputing it because um, you say that people don't acknowledge the, um, the benefits as much as they acknowledge the downsides. Yeah that, that's not far from it I mean I I don't think that the temperature rise is going to be dangerous, but I certainly think there is a temperature rise. I don't think that all the temperature rise we've seen over the last 150 years is due to carbon dioxide. I think some of it natural and some of it is due to, to literally the tampering of the, of the records. And I question why is all this, you know, why is there this narrative of complete disaster um, when actually it's not all disastrous at all. And I just feel like I'm being sold apart, basically. I, I'm being, and we're not, we're not necessarily, well, I think we all are. Uh, we're all being sold things. And, and you more than most, because you've grown up in an education system that's been pushing this literally since you were, you know, five or six years old. So do you think, uh, if um, you want, um, do you sorry. think Australia, like, um, do you think Australia is currently, doing enough because like you say like there are some problems but also like are um some positives do you think australia is doing enough in terms of trying to mitigate um future effects of climate change like those effects that there are or do you think what we're doing currently is fine like, well i don't think it actually matters what we do i think it it doesn't matter what we do for for two reasons firstly because i'm not worried by the increase in carbon dioxide so even if the world burns coal then we do double the carbon dioxide i'm i i don't think i'm worried about that certainly not relative to other things which really scare the living daylights out of me i mean i'm scared the living daylights out of a major volcanic eruption which you just imagine what would happen if you had a volcanic eruption that blanks out the sky over the whole of europe or the whole of the united states and suddenly you have a major part of your food infrastructure has been wiped out, right? Countries don't just sit there and starve, especially nowadays, right? They will end up, they will take the food that they want and it will be an utter disaster. And we can mitigate that very simply by simply 
storing, you know, far more food than we do at the moment. At the moment, we store only a few percent of the total annual consumption, right? We should be storing 34 to 40% of our annual food consumption so that when that happens, and it will happen in the next 100 or 200 years, all right, it's a long time, but then so is the problem from climate change. Um, those are the sorts of things we could be, be doing. The second thing is that it doesn't matter what we do because the, the Chinese and the Indians are going to burn coal, all right, because coal is the cheapest source and we're only a small amount, so it actually doesn't matter what we do. But I would say that we can do more in, in, in the sense of setting an example, all right? But the one thing we can do, and this is another reason why I'm sure I'm being sold a pup, is that the one thing that we can do, which we exclude almost more than any other country, is we can go to nuclear power, all right? Now, at the moment, solar is great. Solar for 20 to 30% of your power uh, or the, the renewables is great, but once you get above that, the problems of intermittency become huge. And we're worried about solar power because we might kill a few people with a bit of radiation from Fukushima or something like that. And the world is supposedly going to come to an end from climate change, and you're worried about a little bit of, well, they're worried about a bit of radiation. We should take the risk with, with nuclear power. It's a tiny, insignificant risk to a, a particular individual. Sure, we build lots of nuclear reactors and some of them are gonna melt down, all right? Just like three of them did in Fukushima. And how many people died in Fukushima? One, right? A whole lot of people have been effectively killed by the reaction to it, by the exclusion from relatively trivial amounts of radiation. So we reject one of the main weapons we've got to reduce carbon dioxide, not based on proper scientists, based on fear, based on bad science. So I guess that's the answer to your question. Yeah, so you would say um, if Australia was to do more, which you don't think is like necessarily like a necessity, then one good option would be to use um, nuclear power because even um, of the potential dangers that they have, um, the benefits are greater provided. Absolutely. I, I think you summed up my position very well. It's not necessary. It's, it's actually a fairly pointless thing to do, but we can do it. And you've got the opposite happening in France. So the French went almost totally nuclear. I think they're about 80% nuclear. They're gonna close down their nuclear power plants. It is just madness. It's just sheer madness. At the moment, Europe is suffering massive energy shortages because the Russians are closing down the gas supply. And the price of, 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 of gas has gone up by 250%. Fertilizer plants are, are closing down at the moment, which, and they provide carbon dioxide, which is used for industry. <laughs> and we've now got a carbon dioxide shortage in Europe because of the gas shortage. It's madness what's going on. Um, and so a lot of like the interviews that you've done within the past year in general has been like focused on coral reefs, because obviously that's a lot yeah. of um, where your background comes from. Are yeah. you, um, if you're not particularly like worried in terms of the effects of increasing carbon dioxide and increasing like warming, because like the um, there are positives as well as the negatives, are you worried about the coral reefs? If not, like say currently, are you worried about the potential, like what could happen to them in 30, 50 years time? No, I'm completely, the amount of worry I have is, is, a, is only a very small amount of worry. You can make an argument that with climate change, some areas will be will be impacted certainly very badly. If you're at the 
you're some you're at the top of a mountain and you're a particular type of animal and if it gets hotter the only place you can go up then you're in trouble from climate change you could argue that polar bears are in trouble even though that the actual numbers is increasing not decreasing the way the narrative goes um but it, it turns out that coral corals are probably better adapted to changing temperatures whether natural or anthropogenic than any other organism right because a coral is a symbiotic relation as you know you have a big coral and it's got lots of little tiny polyps in it and inside that animal polyp there lives symbiotic algae which use photosynthesis to produce the energy and it shares that with the polyp and it turns out and these are clever little critters as you'd expect from 200 million years of evolution they can change the species of the algae that lives in them to cope with different temperatures. And that's exactly what they do when the coral bleaches. So when the coral bleaches, it usually doesn't die, right? It gets hot, coral says, this is bad, right? The, 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 um, the zooxanthellae, this little algae is, is, starts to become uh, dangerous to them. We're not quite sure what happens there, but it does. They then eject it, they usually survive, and then they'll take back uh, zooxanthellae and they'll often take a different type of zooxanthellae, which will be better adapted to them living in hotter climate. So whereas you and I and most other animals, if we're going to adapt to climate change or hotter climates, we've got to go through many generations of evolution. For humans, that would take, I don't know, you know, five generations, many hundreds, 100 years, 200 years. Corals can literally do it in a couple of months. Expel that, that zooxanthellae, bring in a different one, and Bob's your uncle, right. And you'd be surprised to know maybe that at the moment in 2021, there is record high coral cover on the Great Barrier Reef. Record high coral cover. Since records started in 1985, and I was down at the Australian Institute of Marine Science when this work was first started, we now have more coral on the reef than ever before, despite supposedly three unprecedented disastrous bleaching events in the last five years record yeah. coral cover yes yeah, so yeah you mentioned um the australian institute of marine science and like what from like when i looked on their website they said they kind of agree with what you said that the currently in 2021 the corals are starting to recover um like they're no, no 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 they haven't started to recover they're at record this is where aims is deceptive it's not starting to recover. It's completely recovered from those events, which were actually pretty, pretty minor compared with the, the 2011 cyclone season where we lost about almost half the coral in probably three days. Right. Uh, that's the big thing that kills coral and they grow back. They, the coral reefs go through these cycles. So Ames is deceptive in two ways. Firstly, it's not just recovering. It's at record high levels and they, they avoid saying that. In fact, they present their data in a way so it's it's very difficult to even determine that it's not until you actually do the calculations on the data they present in their graphs that you can actually work that out the other thing is they use this completely ridiculous spurious argument that oh it's only the fast growing corals that are recovered did you read that yeah well yeah of and course yeah, it's, the it's only the fast growing corals which, which yeah. are recovered which are the ones that are most susceptible to damage exactly right so when it crashes so when it crashed in, you know, 2011-12, which type of coral was damaged, do you think? It wasn't the long-growing the, the long coral. It was the fast-growing coral. It was the uh, croppers, the, basically the staghorn coral and the plate coral. They get wiped out by cyclones. They're also 
far more susceptible to bleaching and far more susceptible to crown of thorn starfish. So they're the ones that crash. And within five years, certainly 10 years max, they've come back. And they've been doing that for literally millions of years. I mean, what do you think a coral reef is? Coral reef is a pile of dead coral with a living um, coral growing on the top. So it's a 50 meter to 100 meter pile of dead coral. It, it actually grows to the surface by dying, right? So we have the Australian Institute of Marine Science yet again being deceptive in the way they present the data, which is unequivocally bloody marvelous news. And everybody should know this. All those depressed teenagers should be told the Great Barrier Reef has got record high coral cover. It's going to be there for a long time. So just to like help me understand, um, like if like they are being deceptive um, and like they are presenting incorrectly, what would do you think would be their reasoning for doing so? Why do you I think don't know. I, let me fill you in. All right. So what they present is they present two things. They present the the average coral cover in the northern, central, and southern Great Barrier Reef. All right. They also present it in the in the thirteen sectors which make up those three major regions. Right. Now, up until two thousand and sixteen, they would publish not just the north, south, central and, and, and southern, they'd also published the Great Barrier Reef average, right, up until 2017. And then they stopped doing that. And I've asked them, why do you stop doing that? And they said, oh, it's not useful to just give an average. But they, when they do the northern sector, they do an average of probably 60 reefs to give that, and they do an average. And they do the same for the central, and they do the same for the southern. So why can't you do it for the whole lot? Now, I don't understand why they do it, but what it does is it masks over the last five years, this spectacular rebound that's occurred. So in 2012, this is probably too young for you guys to remember when it really did crash and where it looked pretty frightening. I was saying, well, you know, yeah, that looks pretty frightening, but we know that was from a cyclone and we know that when cyclones hit these reefs, it bounced back. So we should expect a bounce back. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the effect of the 2006 bleaching event did cause a little bit of a dip, but the main area that was affected by that, which is Cooktown, has completely recovered. Um, the, the, two, the 1998 bleaching event, which was supposedly the world's worst mass bleaching event, you can't even see it in the data. It was that insignificant. And the same with the 2002 event. You, you may be able to see that one, but it's just a minor blip if it's there at all. So they're totally exaggerating the coral loss from bleaching and they downplay the recovery and then they make it such the data is so obscure that you can't see it. But it wouldn't matter anyway because the press will not report good news because good news doesn't uh, sell. So we now have a whole bunch of depressed teenagers thinking that the reef is just an algal slime. It's very, very sad. Yeah, and like you said, um, but again, I'm sorry you might have answered it, but like I just didn't. I really understand like and it's like you mentioned like about the 2006 and not they're not reporting it on it and like well the media isn't reporting on it because like good news doesn't sell like and but then why would aims itself do you think what, what would be like their reasoning like look at behind not making available like the evidence and not that the fact that the reef is doing better or do you just simply you know that they're doing it but you're not sure why they're doing it I have no, I do not understand the reason they give. I, I'm actually in this case not trying to claim that they're doing something deliberately um, malfeasant in some way, right? Mm -hmm. 
I do think they are like that in regards to the coral growth rate data, which is a different thing. So we've been talking about coral cover, you know, how much coral is on the surface. But the coral growth rate data, I do think they have been deliberately deceptive about what they've done um, because they claim that um, because you can measure coral, coral growth rates by, you've got a great big coral, you know, these ones are sometimes huge. You drill a hole in it. And they have tree rings, essentially like, well, they're coral rings, but they're like tree rings, an annual growth ring. And you can then measure the extension rate and, and plot that over the last almost 400 years. And what the data, their data showed is, well, up to 1990, it goes along, maybe a slight increase, which is what you'd expect from a slightly warming climate. And then in 1990, it suddenly collapsed, right? Now, myself and a couple of others, Eduardo de Silva and Thomas Stieglitz, we reanalyzed their data and what they've done is they've changed the methodology and this, this supposed collapse doesn't exist. Now we've had an argument about that. Um, they don't agree. Well, that's fair enough. So we said, well, you should be out there um, at least trying to determine whether you're right or whether I, we're right or whether we're both wrong or whatever. And they refuse to do that, okay? So we now have 16 years since we had the last uh, reef-wide measure of coral growth rate. So we have an, an organization that claimed between that the growth rate was all hunky-dory until 1990, and then it collapsed by 15%, 1.5%, between 1990 and 2005. We're claiming that, no, you've made a mistake, but far worse, they haven't measured it in the last 15 years. And we've basically issued a challenge. You've just got to go out and do that, you know? if. If I'm wrong, I'll say, well, I'm wrong. You know, the reef is basically stuffed because at the moment, if you, if you extrapolate that curve, we should be down by 30%. 30% in 1% 1, 1 a year, basically, is what they were saying. Well, why don't we go out there and actually measure this thing? We can just set it aside. There's a, a scientific hypothesis. Either I'm right, either I'm wrong, or maybe there'll be somewhere in between. But they won't do it. And when we when we keep uh, pushing them on this, they just put up the shutters, they won't talk, uh, they won't debate this thing. And so in that case, I think they are being deliberately obstructive. In the coral cover case, I think actually their data is one of the most wonderful data sets that I've ever seen. It's, you know, we're talking about 35 years where they tow a diver around well over 100 reefs, like, a, like almost shark bait. I see we're going to lose this meeting but uh, and they take this data it's been a magnificent uh, data set there's there are some problems with it but they've done an extremely good job but on coral calcification it's a disaster what they've done yeah so yeah so you think yeah the, the data set is accurate and a very good data set but um how they've analyzed it has been um incorrect yeah i think that's right now i'd like to talk some more about this whole reef stuff um because we're going to we're going to lose the zoom thing aren't we actually um when actually no we're not we don't actually have the 40 minute limit okay all right um so i mean another example of this is that right i'm a geophysicist i've taught meteorology taught oceanography but i'm i'm a, more than anything else an instrument guy right so measuring stuff and um, while I was at Ames, then later at JCU, we invented the instruments for doing long-term measurements of sediment concentrations out on the reef, right? It was a relatively simple bit of gear, but we, we did that stuff. And my group at JCU, before I was fired, 
um, we had taken more measurements of sediment concentrations on the Great Barrier Reef than all the other groups put together, right? So we knew a thing or two about sediment, my mate Piers Larkham, who's a geologist and, and various others. And yet when it comes to the consensus statements on the reef, our views on this are not just, you know, dealt with and, and, um, and uh, rejected, they're just completely ignored, right? So we completely ignored. So our data shows, firstly, the sediment doesn't get to the main Great Barrier Reef, which is mostly, you know, 50 to 100 kilometres offshore. You can do that with measurements. You can do that with a geological record. There is absolutely no doubt about that. So there's only a question mark about the inshore reefs, the ones really close to the shore, which is maybe 1% of the coral, maybe 1% of the coral. And with all our measurements, we demonstrated that resuspension of ancient sediment, sediment that's been on the seabed for uh, 10,000 years since when the, the sea level rose, um, that is by far the most important factor that determines the amount of sediment that coral sees. By a factor of 100, right? Not just by a little bit, by massive amounts. In fact, in all the time that we were measuring, we're talking close to 30 years, we could never detect definitely a, a flood plume from a river. They would have been in the data, but they were just so small, we couldn't see amongst all the other noise. And yet that information is completely ignored in the, the reef consensus statement. And this is one of the reasons why I started to become a climate skeptic, not because I knew a great deal about it at that time, but I started to give seminars on the reef is fine, guys, you know, and but I knew about sediment, but I thought, oh, well, all the problems of pesticides, that must be real because I trusted scientists. And then I looked at that and I thought, well, actually, the measurements of pesticides show that they're so low, you can't even measure them out on the Great Barrier Reef, and yet we're supposedly blaming the farmers. So that doesn't make sense. And then a, 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 another a climate skeptic, a, a geologist said, oh, you're right on this reef stuff, but the climate change thing is far worse. And I didn't believe him. I thought, oh, no, 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 I'm, I, I do believe that the carbon dioxide is a really big problem. And he started sending me stuff. And what I recognized very rapidly, it probably took me six months, was the same sort of groupthink occurring in the climate change debate that I could see occurring in my own field, that I was the expert. Well, not, I shouldn't say the expert. I was one of the experts. And it doesn't mean to say I'm, I'm totally right on this. Then. I could be wrong on lots of things. But it was just, well, you're out. You're just out. Loose funding. So I was a, an Australian Research Council heavy hitter up to about 2007. When I came out as a Great Barrier Reef denier, we didn't have that term then, um, bingo, no funding. Didn't matter because I did a whole lot of commercial work for the university and we kept the work going. But I could see that that group thing had formed in the reef. Um, science community, it's even worse now. And you can see it also occurring in the climate change thing. There's so, a whole lot of, sorry. Um, um, yes, yeah, so, so that's basically, so your views like started with just like the coral reefs, uh, your area of expertise and you kind of, yeah. from, the, from the research that you had done, you realized that like your, you thought your research showed that the general consensus in the group thing was like wrong. And then like, and then someone's been there like, and you knew that because like you were an expert in your field and you had spent many years there. And, but then like later on, you realize, hold on, like that's what made you become more of a climate skeptic in general was because you realize, although you weren't an expert in like the other fields of um, like in general climate change, a lot of fields, the 
you realize the same process was going on um, in the coral, like with the coral reefs as like in general, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I'd go a little bit further in the sense that because I'm a physicist and I've done a lot of modeling. So I did a lot of um, modeling of electromagnetic, you know, uh, we're mod modeling antennas to do um, uh, for geophysical mineral detection as my PhD. So I've done a lot of modeling. And I'm into the, because of the, my field, I'm into meteorology and oceanography because that's what, you know, we do a whole lot of work on heat transfers in the ocean. And I took a great deal of time, um, probably about 10 years ago to really go into the way that the models work. So I know how to model, right? I wasn't familiar with the details of the, um, the climate models, but I'm, I'm familiar with all the physics behind it. You know, the Navier-Stokes equations, the thermodynamics, the radiative transfer to just look at whether the, the correct sensitivity analysis had been done on those. And I'm completely unconvinced. So I, I wasn't an expert on that. I still wouldn't regard myself an expert on it. However, at, say at my university, where there would probably be 100 people who would say that they were into climate change research, there were only two people in that university when I was fired who actually understood how the models work. So, because that really is the nitty gritty. If those models are right, then we've got troubles. If they're wrong, we don't have a problem. Almost nobody has the physics, mathematics, and meteorological um, background to understand those models. There was another physicist who was there. He's since left as well. So most people are basing their views on climate change on faith in the scientific system. That's what you're doing because you don't understand it all. I don't understand it all, but if we have faith in the system, and maybe you do, um, then you've got to go along with it. Now, I've completely, completely lost faith in the scientific authorities. And right? is that because you've lost faith in, like, the scientists themselves or, like, more the models no, that you use? No, 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 no. I, um, I've lost faith in the systems of science. So you can be a good person operating in a terrible system and you just got to go along with the bullshit, right? So if you were, if you were living in a, I don't know, um, if you were in, living in some sort of regime where all sorts of people were persecuted and if, it, if you stuck your hand up and said, I really don't think you should kill those Uyghurs living in China and you lived in China, you know that you're going to be the next one on the, the, the you know, to be God knows what. Well, you're going to go along with this system, right? This group thing occurs, you know, it's, this is nothing new. It's just a, a, a new thing where group think is being applied to. But I could also see it because I was trying to think as a, as a physicist, we always try to get down to the fundamentals. It's usually the fundamental equations. But in this case, it's what is causing this problem? And why is it that I can publish a whole group number of papers with great difficulty, by the way, um, demonstrating that there are problems with Great Barrier Reef science, it makes no difference, right? You can demonstrate that something is completely rubbish and it makes no difference. In fact, your paper will not be cited at all and the original wrong paper will go on to be cited literally a thousand times. So what is the problem? The problem is with the system. And I, at this stage, this was probably 15 years ago, hadn't heard of this thing called the replication or reproducibility crisis. I don't know whether you've heard of it, but when I first started reading, you know, that peer-reviewed research has got an error rate of, well, very rough figures around half. Half of peer-reviewed research is wrong. <laughs> and I read this and I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, 
I am actually a member of the most untrustworthy profession that there is. I, I literally went through a period of depression thinking we're just a pack of charlatans and not just because we're getting it wrong, but we, we then claim, oh, peer review, it's wonderful. It's this gold reserve. You've got to follow the science. And yet we've got a 50% failure rate. I mean, used car salesmen, salesmen have got a bad reputation, but at least half the cars you buy off the, the forecourt will actually run. And we've been covering this up. Um, it's coming out a little bit now. There's a big inquiry in the UK on the problems of replication. So I lost faith in the systems of science. And what I'm trying to do now is get those systems of science so that we can have more faith in it. We'll never get everything right. We never can, yeah. can never, you can, you can aim for it. You should always aim for it. But just like a court system, we know that there'll be errors there, but you've mm. got to have a system which you think, well, you know, I've just got to go along with it because it's the best we've got. Mm. And so what I'm after is this Office of Science Review or Office of Policy Science Quality mm. Assurance, where we try to smash the groupthink, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's been the enemy of science since, well, since Galileo, basically. Yeah. And, um, and, and you can only do that by having the systems in place, and we do not have the systems in place. Yeah, okay. And so, so you're talking about like a lot of these problems because of the systems and because of um, groupthink and that kind of thing, and like and also just the fundamental like how the system works. So then, therefore, um, with because of these problems, as university students, what like advice could you give us to ascertain like what science um, is credible and what, like what we should accept and what we should shouldn't accept? What? Well, you know, it's actually not hard to tell, at least with some science, that it definitely works, right? So virtually all physics that's in your physics textbook, I can grab a physics textbook here, all right, that physics textbook, you can guarantee that that is right. And we can, and I, we can guarantee it's right because there's been literally thousands of experiments that have been done on that that um, have, have proven within a very well-known margin of error, and this is what a very important thing in physics, that not only that you know what, what the result is, but you know what the margin of error is, you know when you're straying into the unknown, right? So that's the important thing. So your Newton's laws of motion, the uh, laws of thermodynamics, you know that is incredibly well-replicated science. But on the other hand, the way clouds work, we haven't got a bloody clue how clouds form, actually, when you look into the, the details. It's, it's shocking, right, how little we know about how water vapour forms clouds up in the sky. And yet clouds are responsible for a reflection of about 30% of the light that hits the planet, right? If you don't get your clouds modelling properly in your climate model, then your climate model is bullshit. And unfortunately, that is the case. You can look at plenty of other science to see whether, well, has that just has it been replicated? So for example, study came out not long ago, claiming that coal dust was blowing off the, um, the Haypoint coal loading jetty, the big coal loader in Mackay, just south of here, and going out 200 kilometers and potentially damaging the Great Barrier Reef, right? I mean, you can look at this and say, this is just mad. It's just not possible, right? But you can also say, well, well, maybe it is possible, but before we believe this, somebody should go out and replicate it. Somebody else should go out. In fact, not just one person, a few people should go out and replicate it. 
1989, there was supposedly a big discovery of hot fusion, you know, fusion reactors. Um, normally you need a very, very hot um, gas to cause fusion. It's the, the reaction that occurs in the sun. This was a massive breakthrough in physics, right? This group had done it at room temperature. What's the first thing that happened in the physics community? A whole bunch of groups went out to try to replicate that experiment and they all failed, right? So, well, that's not a problem. They made a mistake. We tested it, it failed. But a large percentage of the, the, science, the science that we supposedly use in climate change, certainly in Great Barrier, is never replicated. So it's not science, not until it gets replicated by different groups and it works again and again and again, is that science. And that's the problem. That's what we've got to get to. We've got to be replicating this stuff. We've got to be testing it. We've got to be making sure the group thing doesn't occur. We need auditors. So I'm suggesting we need uh, essentially scientific auditors in the Auditor General's department, not in the science departments of the, the government because they can be captured. Auditors, they understand independence. They're called red teams. You have a red team that challenges the consensus. And you know what? Most of the time, the consensus will be fine. You know, you do a red team on the Pfizer vaccination. I have just about no doubt that it's going to say Pfizer, good stuff, right? Okay. And a whole lot of other things are going to pass through, but there's some things. And if there's a bit of ideology, so for example, in the field of education, where there's a huge amount of ideology there, I would trust almost no educational research at all. Um, but that's what we've got to do. And, and um, this is yeah. going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. And and so, and so a lot of these like views have come from being a um, climate scientist, like what being a scientist and being in the field. Do you think um, like how has your view like of um, like the reefs and I guess climate change in general has been like shaped by being a scientist? And do you think your view would have been a lot differently if you hadn't gone followed the career of becoming a scientist? Oh, if I hadn't been a scientist, I wouldn't hold this view with the, the detailed knowledge that, that I've got now. I've seen that I've seen peer review work. I know. I, I mean, what amazed me was, well, why didn't I know, you know, 25 years ago that peer review is all this rubbish, right? I know how long I spend doing a peer review. I mean, I've done hundreds of peer reviews of other people's papers. How long do I spend? Well, what happens, right? You get an email, oh, could you do this peer review? And you say, oh, yeah, all right, okay. And you do it for free. Remember, it's done for free. And then a month later, the editor says, you haven't done it yet. He says, oh, yeah, don't worry, I'll do it in a week. And he keeps on chasing you until eventually you do it. And everybody's like that, by the way. Well, not everybody, but most of us are like that. And so you think, geez, I really need to get onto it. And you, you read this thing for a morning, you write a, a bit of a report, and you do your best to find your mistakes. You don't do the experiments again. You don't do the statistical analyses again. To do that would take you months and months and months of work, right? So I knew that peer review was rubbish. And so it's only by having that inside knowledge. And also there are two groups of people who are more likely to be skeptics than any other groups. And they are the physicists and the geologists. The geologists, because they look at the changes in the climate and everything else over, you know, scales, and they see massive variations over any time scale. So they are naturally climate skeptics. They're naturally inclined to say climate is changing so what, you know, of course it's changing. Um, it's not changing particularly fast compared with some of the historic changes in climate change, despite what the IPCC might say. 
And the other are the physicists because they're the ones who've got the mathematical ability to really drill down into the processes that are affecting the climate change and the way that the models work. And it's notable, for example, that the Russian um, climate model warms much less than all the other models. And there are a bunch of physicists. They are not working in a system where obeying the climate um, doctrine probably matters to their, um, their funding. So for some reason, their model, which is a perfectly fine model, warms at about half the rate of the, the, the warmest model. Yeah, okay. And so like, I guess like in general with um like like these opinions, like with um climate change and that kind of stuff, are you, and like as I've kind of mentioned before, as we we're talking about earlier, are you um not worried about like the stuff talking about the IPC and like other things about the what is stated about the the increase of extreme weather events? Like oh, you mentioned like the stuff of like the 1930s that just like wasn't yeah. reported on. And like, so like say if it's not, maybe it's not um, as bad as it has been now, but like, you're not worried that in a hundred years time or so, um, these weather events could be a lot worse, worse than they had been previously. Or because, of, as you mentioned before, is it because of these models and because you don't have a faith in the system, then you're not worried about because you, you're not worried about it because you don't have faith in what they're saying? Look, I wouldn't say I'm not worried about it. I, mm. I, I worry about a lot of things, right? And, you know, you've got to worry about the climate doing something funny because it's such it's such a cataclysmic thing if it goes too badly wrong you've got to worry about the great barrier because it's so beautiful when there's something that's really important you're going to worry about it and you should i mean we my, I just to become a grandfather this little baby congratulations <laughs> thanks but but the funny thing is that it's been a wonderful baby it hardly ever cries it sleeps through the night and i'm worried because maybe there's something wrong with this baby <laughs> It's a bloody marvellous baby, but I'm still worried about it. So you should be um, worried about the reef. You, you can't not worry about the reef. You can't not worry about climate change. But I shouldn't be worrying about this baby. I should be worrying about all the other things that are happening in various people's lives close to me. I should be worried about a volcanic eruption because I know that that's, that's going to happen sooner or later. I know it's going to happen sooner or later. And, yes, I do worry a little bit, bit about climate change and... Um, and so what I want to do is see is a huge audit done on it, just to see what's left at the end of that. And now I will be in a, in a better position to work out whether, you know, I should worry more or worry less. So I'd be happy. I, I will walk away from this debate once I see decent quality assurance systems. So it's all about quality assurance, right, in place in science. And if those are in place and they have to be decent, and it shows, well, actually you're wrong, that there is a sort of a second order effect on the reef and that the agriculture does affect it some way. Okay, I may still not agree with it, but if I've agreed beforehand a priori that those quality systems are fit for purpose, then I have to accept the result, um, even if I disagree with it, and we go along with that. Yeah, sure. Becky, I think Becky wants to ask something. Uh, yeah, I just have a question about that. So you think that having access to information saying like accurate information would really influence your opinion do you about climate change and like where it's headed do you think the best way to persuade like the general public and other people is through providing information persuade them of what um oh just like 
persuade them of your opinion of climate change, basically, like to make people understand. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not impossible to get the message out. So I can get the message out very, very effectively to 60-year-old men who watch Sky News, right? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of those who are um, climate sceptics. And by the way, why are they climate sceptics? Because they smell a rat. They just smell a rat, okay? They can, they've, they've been around long enough that they can see they protesteth too much. Why is it that, you know, we've been told that the reef has been on its last legs for close to 60 years, right? Firstly, from Crown of Thorns Starfish, and there it still is. And they've seen enough stuff which is, just doesn't smell right, right? So I can get across to them and, you know, maybe a little bit in the Australian. So the whole audience is maybe in the whole of Australia, it might be 100,000 people right, out of 25 million. Whereas it's in completely impossible and to get it out to the other 25 million. Uh, and nowadays, um, I worry with my Facebook page uh, that I'm going to be cancelled. I watch a guy called Tony Heller who does a lot of really interesting historic stuff looking, he's from America and he's also a physicist actually, but he goes through the, the, the data and shows how it's been manipulated with time and, and he goes through, you know, what happened in the US and how many people died from all sorts of things. But he's been thrown off Facebook, uh, um, uh, YouTube. So it's an incredible problem. And I'm sure that, see, what, what I would hope is that at the end of this interview, I, I don't know what your position was to start with, but I would imagine that you would be um, more or less believers in the, the climate change problem, that you may not be 100% totally convinced, but you're enough convinced that you'd want to, um, I would almost say, destroy your economy to be able to solve this problem, because that's basically the cohort that, that you're in. What I would hope is that at the end of this, that you would look at this and think, maybe there is a little bit more to this than meets the eye. And maybe I do read to, need to read a little bit more, right? That was my view when I was told by this skeptic about the climate change thing. I didn't believe him, but I said, well, I'll send me a whole lot of papers. And I did that. And I kept on going, oh, I can't be as bad as this. It just can't be as bad as this. And then I kept on reading. And then I started to realise, yeah, there is a problem. So I just want to get people to start to question whether there is the possibility that the science systems are broken, that there is a possibility of groupthink, and we just need to get to the bottom of it with an audit. Yeah, and so, and like, so would you say that like, if there was a very well done audit, and like, and like that you thought was very well done and it was like proper, wasn't a part of the scientific community is done by something um, external. And it was a proper well done order of like the, say if it was just like the coral reefs or the climate um, change, like science in general. All the models, yeah. Like all the models and it was a proper well done order. And then, but then that audit did say then like hypothetically that, okay, yes, like some things are wrong, but in general, climate change is a big worry. If there was that audit, then would you be happy then like to say, yeah, okay, like we do need more worried about it. So like what you're like, is, am I Yes, yeah, I, I would. And mm. be beforehand, you'd have to pin me down and say, all right, well, I don't want you wiggling out at the end of it and saying, oh, well, you didn't do the audit properly, so I'm still not going to accept you. You can't have that, right? Mm. So it's a bit like pre-registration of hypotheses, which is not done enough. And this is the thing that's coming through in the biomedical area that 
you've got to pin me down and say, well, we're going to do all these things. Right? And these are the quality assurance sort of checklists which we're going to do. And if we can tick all these boxes and say we get a whole bunch of Russian physicists who've had nothing to do with climate modelling, and we're going to train them up and we're going to get them to do sensitivity analysis on, on models, right? So they're independent. And we're going to go through and we're going to do all these tests. If at the end of it, it shows, well, you know, it is five degrees. It's not, it's not just one degree. Then I'm going to have to accept that. In the same way as this coral growth rate statistic, where I'm saying, look, you guys haven't done this for 15 years. You've claimed a 1% a year reduction in coral uh, growth rate. We can do this very simple experiment. We just go out there again. We drill the holes in the coral. We do, we do it in a way that, that determines whether or not this error, which I think they've made, which is just simply just make sure you, you keep on using big corals. Don't use little corals, which is what they ended up doing between 1990 and 2005, which is just changing methodology. It's obviously bad science, but anyway, they claim not. But we can organise an experiment where we can both agree beforehand, if we do this and we get this result, I then have to... I have to, you know, suck it up. I got it wrong. And they need to do the same. So, yes, we can do that. And we would have to accept it. In the same way as in our legal system, we know that our legal system isn't perfect. We know that guilty people are let off, innocent people go to jail, right? But we've got all sorts of systems in place and we've just got to accept it with all the warts. And we know that it gets it probably right more than it gets it wrong. Whereas I don't think our system in science at the moment on these ideological things, I don't think it gets it right almost any of the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a legal system in China. You know, woe betide anybody in China. I think I, um, I think Becky has one last um, question. Yeah, so this is just sort of, um, sort of going back to the science communication side, because that's definitely like my area of interest. And I was just interested if there are, um, the what you have learned throughout your career like how you wish you had communicated your ideas like if you there's think if you think there's something you could have done better to persuade more people uh well i i wish i'd got onto social media a lot earlier I, i've i've started making a whole lot of little youtube videos and I've been dragged into it kicking and screaming and I wish I'd started much, much earlier. Because, you know, you can write a book. I've written a book on the reef. Yeah, reef, um, reef hearsay. Yeah. Well, how many people do you think have bought that book? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's less than 2,000 people. And I reckon not even half of those would have read it. Okay. Now, I'm glad I've written it because um, it, it gets your thoughts together. But nowadays... You know, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to communication. And I do want to, I mean, frankly, Ben, one of the reasons why I would, I'm happier to talk to you guys than the last thing that I did, which was three days ago, where I, I talked to a group of about 100 farmers, right? All mm. of which were between 60 and 80, mm. right? That, that is not the future. Um, the young people are the future. I believe that you guys will approach this with an open mind, despite the, thing, the fact that I'm certain that you have been brainwashed to some extent. Um, you will look at it and you will very likely solve 
some of these problems in science that my generation and generations either side of me have actually caused. Because I think we, we're guilty of, mm. we're guilty of, of, I mean, I read a, there was an article in The Australian just yesterday where apparently a whole lot of young men are getting vasectomies because they don't want to bring into the world a child when we've got climate change and the end of the world. And I look at this and I think this generation has never had better prospects, higher, higher living standards, longer life expectancy. You're not working in, you know, shithole factories or doing all sorts of things, which, you know, I would have had to have done when I was young or my grandparents would have had to have done. We've convinced the world that the Great Barrier Reef, which you only need to go and look at it to see is the most wonderful, beautiful, pristine, well-protected ecosystem on earth. And we we've convinced people of your age that it's on its last leg. We have a lot to be responsible for. And the funny thing is that your generation will blame us for destroying the planet when actually our generation is what actually, you know, if you go back to the 1950s, my grand, my father was in those pea soup um, smogs in London, right, where literally people could not find their way home. He, he was actually in that position. He couldn't get home from the train station because he couldn't see in front of him, right? And in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and I was a heavily, I still am into conservation, but certainly in the 80s and 90s, we fixed up so many of those problems, right? And we solved them. But unfortunately now it's sort of like we've gone out of control and we've, we've managed to convince ourselves and you guys that the end of the world is happening. It's not happening. This is the one thing we're not guilty of, right? But we are guilty of, you know, sending you guys into depression and diverting you from much bigger problems but you'll work that out you're going to work yeah. this out mm. yeah yeah and like that well that's like a lot and especially like and that's i guess like as i said mentioned the start the i the problems of like worry and anxiety about the issue is like one of the major reasons what got us into doing this in the first place because we see so much about our peers but um that can i just say like, can i can i just say one thing just please 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 it's not as bad as you think it really isn't as bad as you think Okay, go off, have a good life. You will. Uh, don't be scared of having two children. Don't have too many children because, you know, you shouldn't have too many children. You know, two is a good number, but, you know, three if you really have to because half of you won't have children anyway. But they will have a good life. The sea level will be that much higher again in 100 years' time or maybe it will be this much, but so what? You know, we're going to be able to cope with this. We have the technology to cope with it. Um that doesn't mean to say we don't have to do a whole lot of things more environmentally. I do worry about the Australian environment, especially the effect of um, introduced species, invasive species. But things are good. Things are good. Yeah. Well, again, um, thank you very much, Peter, for this interview. It has been a huge help.